Uh, our text for today is going to be 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. so excited out in the gallery that I just forgot to thank you, Grant. thought somebody was dying. There we go. Better? There we go. All right. So uh, before we get into um, 2 Corinthians 3, as our European brothers and sisters like to call uh, this, uh, let me remind you where we're at in uh, teaching, in case you're new or it's been a minute. Um, we've been spending this fall in a vision series kind of imagining together what it could look like for us to recover a vision for uh, spiritual formation. And we define spiritual formation as learning to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. That's what we're after. We're going to just pound that mantra into your bones over the next uh, couple of years. Uh, again, this is not so much a formula as a new way of being in the world, a new way of imagining our, our, our life together as a community and, um, and so last week, we, we, as we're kind of tying off some loose ends in the series, we're going to take a break for Advent and come back and actually start digging in uh, specifically into the practices in January, starting with the Sabbath way of life. Uh, what does it look like to lean into a, a way of life that slows down to create space for uh, Sabbath and rest and silence and solitude? And what does that look like in the midst of uh, busy lives and businesses and families and all that comes with that? Um, so last week, we talked about... Um, this, this invitation from, from Jesus, uh, one of the religious scholars approached him and said, of all the commands, which is the greatest commandment? What's the essence of life, Jesus, essentially is what he's asking. And he responds by quoting the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the prayer that every good Jew would have known and would have prayed tw- at least twice a day. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your, your strength, or we, we defined as your, your veriness, your muchness, all that you have and all that you are should be directed towards God. And so the invitation from Jesus as we bring this kind of vision part to a close is to love God with your whole person. Essentially, that's what Jesus is saying. Love God with your whole person, and then out of that love that God has given you, then love your neighbor as your Self. Another way of saying this, we said last week, is that God wants all of me, all the time, everywhere, right? It sounds like it could be a John Legend song or something, but God wants all of me. He wants all of me, all the time, and everywhere that I go, everywhere I exist, every place that I inhabit, God wants the totality of my being. He wants to align my longings and my loves and to, to, to as uh, Soren Kierkegaard said, for me to learn to will the one thing towards God, right? All of my heart, all of my soul, all of my muchness or my strength, all of my mind singularly directed towards God 
in love. And that's what spiritual formation is about. It's about identifying areas where we are, we are out of alignment, out of tune with the heart of God, with who God is designing us to be, who we're becoming in Jesus, and seeking to, by the grace of God, reorient or realign our longings and loves towards God so that there's a symphony, right, instead of a, a cacophony. And so last week we left you kind of on a little bit of a cliffhanger if you were here. If you weren't, you have no idea what we're talking about, but we stopped short of saying, okay, what does that actually look like and what kind of expectations should we have about that process? Because some of us, if we're honest, we know that reality is true, but we look at our lives and our expectations have fallen woefully short, right? Like we expected God to do this and God seems to have done this and kind of overpromised maybe and underdelivered. And when we don't have the right expectations for the journey, we can get disillusioned, we can get embittered, we can become frustrated or impatient. That's why some of us have left the church in the past, because things weren't moving at the pace that we expected, or people uh, couldn't be fixed as fast as we thought they should, or we uh, experienced tension and conflict in our relationships. And so a lot of this is learning to have realistic expectations when it comes to the journey of transformation or change. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is what kinds of expectations, what, are the, what, what, what should we realistically expect on the journey of change? What does it look like? Give us a map, right? Like we all need a map. And so I'm going to be your uh, kind of resident uh, teacher slash cartographer today. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a map of the journey, the, the, the journey that we can expect. And then I want to show you how to actually structure a life um, that leads us towards turning ourselves, right? That's the idea of ahava, love. It's, it's delighting in or turning uh, our affections and our being towards God uh, so that we learn increasingly to love him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so how do we actually structure life? Because some of us, uh, we have good intentions, right? We, we have thoughts about how to do it. We try some things here and there, but we haven't structured a life realistically that enables us to experience this kind of change. And so we find ourselves caught in these kind of patterns or cycles that need to be broken. So uh, the, the text we've chosen this morning to walk us through this is coming up from the master of spiritual formation, the Apostle Paul. Um, and so the background here is really important for us to understand um, so that we see what he's saying and what he's not saying. There's a lot of weird stuff here about veils and, uh, you know, the, the spirit of the Lord and uh, ministries of death and condemnation. Basically, um, the background to this passage is Exodus chapter 34. So if you want to mark that for later, you can go back uh, and at the end of Exodus chapter 34, the book of Exodus, which we're going to be teaching through next year uh, in chunks and bits and pieces, is all about liberation. It's about the people of God being liberated from slavery in Egypt, being delivered and rescued out of that slavery and brought into the promised land, brought into a covenant relationship with God in a particular time and place known as uh, kind of ancient Israel. And so one of the key themes in the book of Exodus is the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory is uh, kind of a, a euphemism for the presence of God, right? It was symbolized by God leading the people in, in, in a pillar of smoke and fire. It was a dangerous presence. It was something that people were, were terrified of. When we see God as he really is, not just as we want him to be, what we see in the Bible is people falling down on their faces in absolute dread, right? That's the, the glory of God. And so we have um, essentially here in this passage uh, Paul is comparing and contrasting the relationship that Moses had with the Shekinah glory 
to the kind of relationship or the presence and the power of God, to the kind of relationship that we now can expect to experience. Because in Exodus 34, we see that Moses would have these encounters with the presence of God. He was the only one allowed to go up to Mount Sinai to deal directly with God face to face. And when he spoke to God, he would come back down the mountain like he came back with the tablets, and it says his face literally looked like a maglite, like he was glowing with this kind of energy uh, that came from being in the presence of God. Being fully alive brought him this kind of countenance that was, again, terrifying. So he had to wear a veil to cover his face because the people were so freaked out. And so um, we see Moses' relationship to the glory, and then now Paul is contrasting that with our experience of the glory of God. And so here is what he says, starting in verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, when you uh, become a follower of Jesus, when God transforms you at the core of your being, the veil is removed. Every obstacle is removed from you having full access to the presence and the power and the glory of God. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, circle that word all or highlight that word, we all now, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So some of the differences we notice here between the Israelites and the ministry of Moses and Paul and and the New Testament ministry of of the gospel, Um, Paul is saying the Lord is the Spirit, right? So what he's saying, normally when Paul talks about the Lord, who is he referring to? Jesus, right? Jesus is Lord. Here we see that the Holy Spirit is also God, and he says the Spirit is the Lord, the Lord is the Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit has now come to live in us. God himself dwells in us. We, don't have to, we no longer have to enter the Holy of Holies or some kind of special place and perform all kinds of rituals and wear all kinds of garb. There's no more need for the priestly system and all the sacrificial system. That veil that kept us from the presence of God because God is holy and we are not has now been torn in two because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The, the payment has been made. The guilt has been atoned for or taken away. Now God himself has come to live inside of us. We are temples, Paul would go on to write, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We have full access to what Gordon Fee, one scholar, calls God's empowering presence. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. It is the person of God. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not some kind of cosmic flow or force or energy that kind of flows through life. He is a person. He is a personal being. He comes to live in us. He is, a pre- he is the presence of God sh- kind of poured out into us, empowering us to live the life that Jesus were li- would live if he were here with us because he is. And so the Spirit of God comes into us and begins to turn us towards God. And notice what happens. He says, we behold the glory of the Lord. So we, we gaze at, we begin to look at, we begin to see with the eyes of our heart, with the eyes of our soul, we begin to see God differently. God isn't some uh, overbearing father anymore. God isn't just some religious taskmaster uh, or some police officer who's like keeping score and arresting us when we make mistakes, locking us up. No, now we see the beauty of God. 
we see uh, the truthfulness of God. We see the goodness of God, the sweetness of God. He says, as we behold that, we become like him. So there's this pattern of looking at God, beholding him, gazing at him, and seeing him with the eyes of our heart, with the eyes of our soul, our spirit, becoming one with this spirit. And as we behold, we are transformed. That's that word metamorpho. Metamorpho is this word from which we get metamorphosis. It's the idea of, you know, caterpillar to butterfly, right? Deep, inside out transformation. That is the promise of the New Testament. Where the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom. The idea of freedom is a freedom from and a freedom to a freedom from bondage, right? He's saying just like uh, in the Old Testament, God released them from bondage, that now becomes a parable, that now becomes uh, an, a, a, a picture or a metaphor for how God is releasing you from the bondage of self-centeredness to and freeing you up to live the life that God has called you to live, what Jesus called the super abundant life. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is what we're talking about. So this is what the Spirit does in us. This is not something that we manufacture. This is not something that we make happen. This is something that God himself enters in and empowers uh, to make happen from beginning to middle to end. The Holy Spirit is transforming us. Now, the question is, how does he actually do that, right? How does that happen? What should we expect in terms of transformation? Let me give you two, I want to give you kind of a, a mental model or a framework to operate out of that I think will help explain uh, some of the different ways that the Holy Spirit uh, works in the Bible to bring about transformation. Two primary ways, two primary uh, systems, if you will, in terms of how the Spirit uh, operates. One, we'll call breakthrough, right? Breakthrough. Breakthrough moments, breakthrough events, breakthrough time. The second is process. So we see both in the Bible breakthrough. We actually see both in this passage, breakthrough and process. And I want to get really practical about how we structure a life uh, towards these realities. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's the first piece we see. That is the idea of breakthrough. Breakthrough is the instantaneous gift of transformation where God supernaturally disrupts the predictable patterns of human development in order to accelerate healing and deliverance and growth. It's instantaneous, right? It happens in a moment. It's unpredictable, right? Like we're going and living our lives and we're caught in these systems, right? Like our family systems and we're caught in our own kind of like embodied systems and ways of being in the world, many of which are learned um, by the environments we grew up in, some of them deeply embedded inside of us, right? But the Holy Spirit, God, supernaturally disrupts those patterns in order to accelerate healing, deliverance, and growth. He shows up in a way that is amazing, right? Unexpected. And he comes into our life and he begins to work the miraculous, right? Like, this is the whole story of Jesus' life, right? God becomes flesh. Like, salvation, grace, these are all breakthrough moments. God, for the first time in the history of the world, becomes a human being, unites divinity with humanity, 
right? Jesus lives the life that we couldn't live, right? He, he dies on the cross for our sins, taking away the sin of the world. He rises from the dead, right? The only human being we know who has risen from the dead, who had 500 witnesses testifying to his bodily resurrection uh, just a few uh, days after the crucifixion, three days, right? So there's supernatural work of God where he breaks in and he does unexpected, amazing things. He changes us deeply and permanently. We see this in uh, Acts 2. This is the life of Jesus, right? Acts 2, 22. Uh, Peter preaching to the Israelites right after Jesus' resurrection. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He said, you saw it, right? This wasn't a figment of your imagination. Jesus raised dead children to life. Jesus healed blind people, right? He, he provided for the poor. He did all kinds of supernatural works and wonders. And then he imparts this ministry, this extraordinary, supernatural, miraculous ministry of breakthrough to his disciples. John chapter 14. This isn't something just that's relegated to Jesus and that has like an expiration date, right? John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And get this, this is crazy. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. We see this pattern over and over and over again where God breaks in. I think of the life of Saul, Acts chapter 9. Murdering and persecuting the church. God shows up and flexes in the desert, knocks him off his animal, basically says, hey, you're going to be mine. And you're going to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And Paul's life is forever changed. And we see him do that over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. So I want to encourage us that we should pray and we should work for breakthrough. We should never get complacent. We should never, get, we should never settle for just the ordinary, just the routine, just the status quo. We should be praying and working and asking God to do these kinds of things again in our day. God, would you disrupt the predictable patterns of sociology and history and those things that are obstacles that seem to be obstacles to change, psychology. Uh, God, would you just drop in and change those things? I think about Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, his prayer to God. Oh, Lord, I've heard the report, the rumors of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. He said, I've heard of your great deeds. God, would you do it again? God, don't allow me just to settle for the enslavement and the oppression uh, spiritually of my people, physically of my people. God, would you do what you did in the Exodus again now, starting with me, he says. Breakthrough. I think about my own life and times when God has powerfully worked in ways that I didn't expect, right? I didn't grow up in the church and I became a Christian as a teenager uh, but I was a very complacent, apathetic, indifferent uh, Christian early on, if there is such a thing. And about age 19, God used a series of circumstances, a mission trip to the Philippines, uh, a, a passion conference uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, and then uh, crew, uh, the ministry of crew, to just wake me up. And he used the relationships and the circumstances to literally set me on fire. And for the first time in my life, I wanted to read the Bible. Like, I, I, I was delivered and healed 
from some things in my past, some patterns of apathy and passivity and addiction that now he's bringing new freedom into my life. I I read the Bible in like a couple of weeks. Uh, I read the Bible a couple times through over the next uh, year or two. I began to want to go to church and want to be around Christians, which is a totally new thing. Uh, I definitely didn't want to do that as a teenager. All of a sudden, I find myself serving in a church and excited about ministry and it was just one of those moments where you, you move forward in leaps and bounds, not in inches. So we should expect God to do that in our lives. We should pray for God to do that. We should work towards that. But we should be careful about becoming dependent on that model of growth. Right? We should, we should be careful because uh, breakthrough is a nice place to visit. It is a hard place to live. Don't build a house on breakthrough right? It can be exhausting. I've heard people say, pastors say weird things like, I'd rather uh, burn out than rust out. And it's like, how about we just not get out? How about we just stay in, right? We got to be careful about building a house, about trying to live on breakthrough, about get, getting overly dependent on these big, extraordinary, awesome, you know, life-changing experiences where God's just going to do amazing things. We've got to watch ourselves, for those of us who are a little bit more inclined to using uh, superlatives, let's say it nicely, uh, everything is awesome, everything's great, everything's got to be extraordinary and life-changing all the time. You've got to be careful. Um, Zach Eswine, uh, in his book, uh, uh, Sensing Jesus, he talks about some of the dangers of extraordinary and trying to live there. Uh, talking about the book of Ruth. It says, The true act of heroism in Jesus on the cross and emptying the tomb is to return us to the grace of doing life with God in a place with love for our neighbors and finding the enjoyment in that which God has created us for. Heroic moments have as their aim the recovery of the ordinary. Without these remembrances, some of us will burn ourselves out with romanticism. We cannot find God in the ordinary. We restlessly move ourselves from one grand moment to the next. We regularly push others into the same whirlwind. We have little room in our ministry for a Naomi who does not get her husband back or a locality in which the visitation from God is that the supper tables have food again. We have trouble seeing how it is glorifying to God to eat food, learn to love, go to bed, and get up the next day for work. The thought of living and ministering in one or two unknown and ordinary places for 50 years and then going home to be with the Lord feels like death. Of what account to God is an ordinary life in the grain field? Right? Millennial death. Put me one place for more than five minutes and make me stay there. Gen X or death, right? Like, put me in one place, make me stay there for longer than five or ten years. We should be cautious. We can become impatient. If we're trying to build a house in breakthrough, we can become impatient with others, always pushing them, always trying to get them to, you know, speed it up. Let's go. Bigger, better, faster, stronger, more extraordinary. Let's make it awesome. Let's have a big impact. We can romanticize life. Instead of dealing with what is, we deal with what should be or what ought to be or what we wish would happen. We can shame people. So breakthrough. It's, and again, it's a tension. This is a paradox. This is not something we fix. We just see them both. Second one is process. Process is kind of the opposite of breakthrough, right? It's the slow, long, 
painful grind of transformation that happens in the ordinary rhythms and relationships of life. As Eugene Peterson says, it is the long obedience in the same direction, putting your hand to the plow, setting your course, and being faithful. So what Paul says here, the normal pattern for the Spirit to work, notice, we all beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. How does it happen? From one degree of glory to the next. This is inches, not leaps and bounds. This is incremental. One degree, right? From 50 degrees to 51 degrees. And then from 51 degrees, maybe back down to 45, and then sometime back up to 52. This is not climbing the ladder to your best life now. This is a bull and bear market. It looks like the stock market over the last like 15 years. It's ups and downs. One degree of glory to the next. The normal pattern for transformation is the normal pattern of life. The long, slow grind of transformation in the ordinary rhythms and relationships of life. Life moves in patterns and seasons, right? It's very ordinary. You're reminded of that when you go home for Thanksgiving or when you don't go home for Thanksgiving. There are seasons of life that have to be observed. I think of uh, some scriptures here. Luke 13, Luke chapter 13. Uh, Jesus talks about uh, this parable. Do we have that next slide? Somebody back there? There we go. Um, Luke 13. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, one of the smallest seeds in agriculture, that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1, finally then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and how to, ought to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. What are they to do more and more? Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own business, Paul says, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul's saying, embrace the ordinary. That is where God has you. That is where he is changing you. Life moves in seasons and patterns. Spiritual transformation, friends, is no different. You are a human being, and spiritual transformation is not less than human. It is the recovery of our full humanity. That's why Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, says the glory of God is a human being fully alive, fully human. Nature brings seasons, right? I'll throw up some things on the screen here. Uh, there are seasons in business, right? This is from a book called From Barbarians to Bureaucrats, right? Organizations move in life cycles. We see this on the next slide. Uh, sorry, two. There's a season for everything, says Ecclesiastes. Then there's life cycle stages of businesses, right? You move from startup and the different styles of leadership that go along with those different seasons and the waxing and waning, right? Businesses and organizations move on seasons. Humans also, next slide, move on seasons. This is from a great book on adult development. We see that we move through different seasons and there's opportunities for renewal, but there's waxing and there's waning uh, and there's the ordinary stuff that gets us from here to there. Uh, throughout church history, people have noticed that there are developmental patterns in our faith. 
Uh, Augustine, as early as the 5th century, was writing about this, and John of the Cross, the mystic, and Francis of Assisi, and Evelyn, Evelyn Underhill, and John Wesley all noticed that our, our life, as, as far as our faith goes, tends to move in different seasons or stages. I want to show you the next slide is one that a guy named Robert Gulich, and kind of summarizing all that, shows here how it tends to unpack from our recognition, our awareness of God, our conversion, uh, this side on the right is very external, like the, this is like your 20s and 30s, you're all about getting busy and being productive in Jesus' name, then you hit what's called the wall, some of you are there right now, you know what the wall is, some of you have no idea, um, you'll get there uh, in short order, uh, the wall is the, what John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul, can't go under it, can't go over it, got to go right through the wall, and then you emerge in the second half of your life uh, is about the inner journey, kind of moving outward into a life of love that's connected to who you are and God's true calling on your life instead of being shaped by the expectations of others around you. These are some of the different models. The point is that life is, most of the time, ordinary, mundane. And it's in that space where God wants to do a work of transformation. Tish Warren, in her fantastic book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, writes about this in a day, and she kind of marks out a day from the time that she wakes to the time that she goes to bed and talks about uh, making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and losing her keys and fighting with her husband and trying to see God in all the daily rituals of life. Here's what she says. A sign hangs on the wall in a new monastic Christian community house. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. It's like your college dorm room, right? I was and remain a Christian who longs for revolution, for things to be made new and whole and beautiful in big ways. But what I am slowly seeing is that you can't get to the revolution without learning to do the dishes. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get to the thrill of an edgy faith. But it's in the dailiness of the Christian faith, the making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and grows. Dallas Willard, likewise, says transformation is actually carried out in real life, where we dwell with God and our neighbors. First, we must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And finally, Rich Plass, one of our mentors here at Soma, my, my counselor, says this, the truth about significant soul transformation is this, change is possible, but it is harder than we want and takes longer than we expect. Amen? Anybody who's been a Christian for more than five minutes, it's harder than we want and takes way longer than we expect. Now, there's a danger t- here, too. In trying to build a house in the ordinary, we've got to be careful because we can get complacent. We can become risk adverse, right? Like nobody trying to live in the routine of daily life is going to go and, and, and do uh, great th- attempt great things for God. Um, so there's some dangers here. We can get rigid in our approach. But the majority of the writings of the, the early church and the New Testament and really even the way that we kind of organize and structure the liturgical calendar, we have a thing called ordinary time. It's right now. It's from Pentecost to Advent. It's a major chunk of our life together. It's learning to live in the ordinariness of life and to see God in the ordinariness of life and structuring a life to see God 
and experience his presence and power and transformation in the ordinary mundane things of life. So I want to close with uh, just some practical uh, tips or advice or whatever uh, on how we actually structure this kind of life. How do we actually structure a life that leverages the everyday ordinary moments of our existence and rather than living in kind of the abstract or living in the, you know, what we should be doing, what we ought to be doing, but like actually living in the now of what is right in front of us, how do we structure a life that is turned towards God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Now, the way we typically kind of think about this uh, is uh, living a balanced life. Time management gurus like Covey and others have kind of hijacked this conversation. So let me just, uh, if you'll turn to the next slide, this is kind of how we typically think of structuring a life is like a pie, and we got to divide up the various pieces of our lives, right? Like, so I've got my emotional life, and that's got to be 17% of my day, and my spiritual life's got to get 17% of my day, and my physical life's got to get 17% of my day, and we think of it uh, very compartmentalized. The challenge is, like, life doesn't work this way. Number one, you're a spiritual being and all of your life is spiritual. You can't cloister off your spiritual part or your mental part. Now I'm doing thinking and now I'm going to do emotions and now I'm going to do the will and now I'm going to do my finance. It doesn't work like that, right? There's just life. That's why the whole, it's hilarious that we've created a whole category of business literature called work-life balance. That tells you how out of balance and sick that we are, that we have to talk. It's just life. There's no balance. It's just life. Balance compartmentalizes. Balance makes no room for the desperate and the suffering and the oppressed, right? Like, no, you'll find zero poor uh, and, and, and victimized people talking about work-life balance. It's a very middle-class, affluent conversation, to be frank. It's also a very control-oriented attempt at living life. If I can just control and get balance, then I can control my life. We're not looking for a balanced life. Neither are we looking for an imbalanced life, by the way, because some of you are like, yeah, I reacted against that whole balance thing, and now I'm living an anarchist, kind of like imbalanced, organic life, whatever that means. That just basically means, organic means you're not really doing a whole lot of anything, and you're going to have a lot of regrets when you're in your 50s and 60s, right? That's kind of my definition of organic. It's not a call to imbalance either. It's a, it's a call to a centered life, a life centered on seeing the presence and power of Jesus. Next slide in my everyday life. The Holy Spirit is living in me, and there's no aspect of my life that is not under the reign and the rule of God. Every one of these parts of my lives touch and are interconnected, and I must learn to see the presence of God in my work, in my rest, in my play, in my joy, all of my emotions, joy, even the hard ones, sadness. I've got to see God in my sadness. I've got to see God in my suffering, or I'm going to go crazy. I've got to see God in all of my relationships. I've got to learn to see God in my enemies, because I'm called to pray for them and to interact with them and deal with them, not just to demonize them and unfollow them on Twitter. All of life centered on the reality of God. So how do we structure the kind of life that gets us there? Historically, the church has had lots of resources available here, and one of the primary tools that um, mystics and spiritual writers and both uh, kind of career ministry people and lay people have used to help structure their life towards this uh, one degree of glory to the next kind of transformation is called a rule of life. A rule of life, now I know immediately some of us get like allergic, we hate rules, okay? Think, don't think rule as like, you know, your parents telling you don't do this. 
Think rule, the word rule actually comes from the word trellis in the Greek. So think of it as a support structure for a grapevine, right? Like everything organic needs structure to be able to thrive, and it's no different with our spiritual lives. We need structure to help the organic realities of God kind of take root and grow and become effective, right? So a rule of life is simply this, a holistic description of the spirit-empowered rhythms and relationships that create, redeem, sustain, and transform the life God invites us to live humbly for his glory. Routines, rhythms, relationships that God uses as the very place of transformation in our life. This has a long history in the church. John Calvin talks about this in his book, On the Christian Life. Um, Daniel, you can see in the book of Daniel, had uh, some semblance of a rule of life in how he lived in Babylon. You can see this in John of the Cross and, again, other spiritual writers. It's really just asking the question, how are we going to intentionally spend the moments, hours, days, weeks, and years of our lives, because that is your life, right? A bunch of moments, hours, days, weeks, and years, and you only get so many of them. Annie Dillard famously said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives, and if you don't structure a life in that direction, you'll, you'll miss out on what God has for you in terms of who you're becoming in Christ. I want to give you an example from my own life. I found this to be really helpful over the past decade. Uh, in a season, I think I've shared my story a lot with you guys, but in a season where I was struggling with anxiety and pressure of, of moving to a new city and planting a church and kind of having the achiever part of me in overdrive, I was really stressed a couple of years ago. My life was so far out of whack. I was drifting away from the basic patterns of discipleship. Even as a pastor, I know that you guys think we have some like magical wand that we wave and our life is, is easy and we just kind of effortlessly drift towards spiritual formation. The reality is it's oftentimes the opposite for most pastors. Uh, we struggle deeply with the same things that you do. We just learn to hide it better and, and uh, cloak it in spiritual language. So I was struggling and a, and a mentor of mine pointed me towards a rule of life and actually helped me craft a, a rule of life. And um, so I'm going to throw it up on the screen and just walk you through it. Um, I've built it around a couple of categories, and you can do it different ways, and we'll talk about that in a second, but I've structured mine around being present and learning to be present to God, present to myself, and present to other people around me. I think the heartbeat of God in becoming human is becoming present to us, making himself available to us, and his ask is that we respond with our presence, with him, with ourselves, with other people. And so this is an attempt to kind of uh, to, to incline my heart, to turn me towards God intentionally and regularly. So for me, I lay it out with a vision statement. I'll read you one of these as an example. Um, again, this is super personal, but hopefully this will be beneficial. Uh, so for me, my vision in terms of presence with God, I am a man who communes deeply with my heavenly father. My story is shaped by God's story of grace, and my vitality is sustained by a desperate prayer life that reminds me that apart from the presence of God as an achiever, I can do nothing. I actively listen for, for God's voice and God's vision through faith in God's word and the presence of God's spirit, and I learn to joyfully surrender to the mystery of God's loving invitation to find fullness of life in him alone. That's the 50-year vision that I am praying and asking God to make in me that I cannot generate in my own strength. 
Then I just root it in scripture and just say I'm claiming this promise from God. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays that they would know the love of God deep in their soul, right? Apart from performance, apart from achievement, they would know God's love and that it would change them. The values there, the culture that I want to create in my relationship with God, scripture, because I'm prone to believe that I know what's better than God, Sabbath or rest, and then surrender, right? Because I'm prone to control and try to control my reality. And then just some habits that support that. And I lay uh, a couple of these out. You might start with one or two. I started with one or two. And over time, I've continued to add to these. But just creating space for uh, contemplative reading of Scripture in the morning, 10, 15 minutes, taking the Lord's Prayer, taking a psalm, reading and reflecting, inviting God into my day, being silent before Him instead of trying to tell Him what I need, listening for His activity and presence in my life. Setting aside time monthly uh, for silence and solitude. The fourth Thursday of the month, I get out of the office, turn my phone off, disconnect, remind myself that my first calling is as a Christian and disciple of Jesus. Then all the other responsibilities that I have, we require all of our pastoral staff to do that uh, every month, at least one day, to take a full day of silence and solitude. And again, busy pastors, a lot going on, so it's not like we're just sitting around in the lotus position all day. Um, actively participate in Sunday worship gatherings. I want to be a disciple with you. I'm not above that. I need that as much as anybody. And then learning to limit social media. Um, so that's presence to God. I'll flip through the other ones. Present to myself, learning to pay attention to what God's doing in me so that I'm paying attention to those parts of myself that I'm, I'm blind to in community with other people. So you can see some of the, some of the routines there. Uh, again, this is comprehensive. This is about how I work. This is about how I sleep. This is about my physical health and seeing the connection to my spiritual life. This just is about the ordinary moments and days and weeks and months that make up a life. How do we capture these and surrender these to God? Counseling, hobbies, taking time off on Mondays to Sabbath and to rest, trying to embrace a life of simplicity and conversation with friends who know me well and who know the greed that's in my heart. Present to others is the last one. And again, I want to be fully present in my relationships. I want to show up for my people, right? I want to show up for my friends. I want to show up for my wife. I want to show up for my kids. And in order to do that, I have to put that in my calendar. I am a goal-oriented, task-driven person. This is the hardest one for me, is to be present in relationships and emotionally and physically and mentally dialed in to uh, my people. And so we do that in a number of different ways. We, t- we are taking a sabbatical this summer. Our pastoral staff take a sabbatical every seven years. You see that in the book of Levit- Leviticus. Uh, it was actually a mandate for the entire community that they take rest every seven years and stop from their work to remind themselves that they were not commodities, but they were human beings. And so I just want to encourage you. I don't know if you have a plan, and you may think my plan's stupid. Uh, I like my plan better than your no plan for some of you, okay? So just start there. Like, just I don't know what your plan is. I don't know what your rule is. You all have a rule of life. The question is not, do you have a rule of life? It's, are you consciously aware and intentional with the rule that you have? We all have a rule of life. We all have patterns and ways that we live. The question is, are they inspiring us and actually practically allowing us to turn our affections, our loves, our longings, our relationships, our heart, mind, soul, and strength towards God? Or is it, is it doing something else? We're all being formed and shaped. Nobody drifts into discipleship. You are being formed every single day. I am being formed every single day. The question is, am I being formed towards God 
or away from him. Towards a life of love or away from a life of love. Now, just some encouragements and we'll pray. Some things to remember. One, this is my plan. So uh, especially ladies, I heard last service, some people were elbowing their husbands and going, where's our rule of life? Where's your rule of life? And they're saying, see, the pastor has this, and they were taking pictures. Don't do that. Please, do not do that. One, to your husbands or your wives. Uh, please don't do that. Secondly, for the sake of your own, like, don't borrow my template. This is mine. This works for me. Self-awareness is huge, right? Self-awareness is huge. Walker Percy says, why is it possible to learn more in 10 minutes about the Crab Nebula in Taurus? which is 6,000 light years away, than you presently know about yourself, even though you've been stuck with yourself all of your life. We don't know ourselves, right? And yet we try to take other people's journey. Your journey is your journey. My journey is my journey. Know yourself. John Calvin, at the opening of his institutes, you can't know God unless you know yourself. You cannot know yourself unless you know God. We must know ourselves, and we must craft something that works for us pacing, right? Take it slow. We overestimate what can happen in four weeks. We underestimate what can happen in 40 years. And then experimentation, right? This is all about progress, not perfection. Now, I realize this can be overwhelming, and some of you, some of you are achievers, and you'll take this as a challenge. And like one guy already had his rule of life written out before I got done with the service and was like showing it to other guys. Okay, please don't do that, okay? This, is, this can become a shaming tool as much as anything else. And some of you achievers are like, aha, finally, like give me a challenge and I will rise up and crank out this rule of life, okay? That is not the point. Others of you are just like, oh my gosh, like I might have to leave this church, all of this structure, all of this planning, I'm an artist, I'm a you know, right brain, I, like I don't do that very well. You're overwhelming me, okay. We want to create again something that's realistic, not something idealistic and romantic. So we have taken the, love, uh, taken the privilege of uh, writing for you a spiritual formation guide that we're going to be rolling out in January. I want to show the last slide here. It's just a little bit of a commercial or teaser for this thing. We're going to put it on a website and help you take a step, okay? This is, if you've ever seen the movie, What About Bob? This is baby steps, okay? Because we all need steps, right? It's not a, a leap off the cliff into, you know, like this well-ordered life. For most of us, it's going to be a step. It starts with an invitation. What is one area where God is inviting me to grow? There's a scripture that goes with that. So I'm making sure I'm claiming things that are actually mine to claim and not uh, something that uh, I'm whispering to myself. What are the resistances that are keeping me from doing that, both externally and internally? What are the limitations I need to realize, right? Can I get an amen, young moms? Like, you know, your rule of life is going to be different than a, a young single person that's going to be different than a retired person. Season of life, limitations need to be acknowledged in writing uh, any kind of spiritual formation plan, right? Uh, practices and then support around us. This is kind of what we're going to be pressing into over the next several months. The point is, God is inviting us to change. And he invites us to partner with him in the work of transformation from one degree of glory to the next. Where the Lord is, where the Spirit is, there is freedom, there is change. But it's going to be long. It's often going to be slow. It's going to be painful. It's going to mean that we embrace the ordinary mundaneness of life. But God promises to be faithful to take us to the end. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your grace, that you are transforming us from one degree of glory to the next, that you promise to bring about those things in our hearts and lives that we cannot do for ourselves. I pray for us that you would speak to us. God, we do ask for breakthrough. We pray for you to break through the hardness of our hearts, the hardness of our minds and our souls. We pray, God, for your help in just even having the desire to want to change. God, wake us up. Give us the right desires. Help us to want to want to change this morning. And then, God, give us your wisdom as we pursue that to see where you're inviting us in the small little areas of our lives and the areas where there are obstacles or hindrances or weights that are on us, God, that need to be lifted. Would you give us vision to see those? Would you give us courage and conviction to step towards those, believing that you can change us by your love? We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.